you've already heard what I'm going to be preaching. So if you will turn to Psalm 51 this morning. I would like to read this whole psalm. And I do so not to make the sermon longer, but I do so because it is a most beautiful psalm. And uh, just to take one verse, which we're going to be looking at today, without doing due justice to where it is found, um, I wouldn't be having a good conscience about it. So Psalm 51, and beginning there with this psalm, let us read. To the chief musician... A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thy desire is not sacrifice, Else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. My text this morning is verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. I am sure most of us here this morning are very familiar with the occasion of this psalm. If you go back to the very title of it in Psalm 51 at the beginning there, It reads, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, this is one of the several uh, what is called penitential psalms given in our Psalter or the book of Psalms. And as the title indicates, David composed this psalm upon his repentance 
revolving his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, or involving, I should say. You can read of the divine account of this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and then you can see David's repentance given there in chapter 12. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we do see David's sin described. David didn't go out to battle that day. Instead, he was up on his rooftop and he happened to look out and he saw a woman bathing. Of course, this stirred up his lusts, his desires, his remaining corruption. He had the woman sent for and then David committed adultery with her. And then, of course, she is with child and so she informs David of this and then David then rather than crying out to God for mercy and forgiveness, does it his own way. He plots and he plans to see how that he can get her husband home to hide the sin of David. Of course, Uriah at this point is more of a man than David. David or Uriah does not go out and see the boys and then go home. To his wife, instead, he recognizes that his men are back at the battle and he feels he has a duty to be sober and serious while he is home. So David cannot get him after two tries to go home and to be with his wife. And so David then plans another thing. And then he, in this, he causes Uriah to be killed. So not only is David now guilty of adultery, David is guilty of murder. And finally, David takes Bathsheba home to him now as his wife with other thoughts on his mind. And then one day, the Lord sends Nathan unto David with a parable to show David that he was truly the man that that parable was speaking about. You remember the words of Nathan the prophet, Thou art the man. And then Nathan revealed unto David the work, or excuse me, the word of the Lord, of how the Lord had taken from David from the sheepfold, how that he had blessed David, and how that he had made David great by making him the king of all Israel. And after Nathan had pronounced God's judgment against David and his household, David in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 12 says this, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan then declared that David or that God had put away his sin and that he would not die. So through the providence, this providence, through this providence of God, the great man, the great king, David, who committed great sins before God, was brought to repentance. It is considered by most that David must have lived with what he had done for about a year before he actually did repent and confess his sin. Being a Christian, 
as David most certainly was, he must have had some pains of conscience for his terrible sins. But sin is deceitful, isn't it? We really don't know what all David thought that full year after he had committed those terrible and grievous sins. What all David must have thought and all that he has felt, we don't know because the Bible does not tell us. God was not pleased to reveal and record that for us. Now, in thinking of that, just as this introduction, let me give some valuable, I think, some valuable lessons in this. First of all, it's this. God's people, even the very choice of servants, may fall into grievous sins. And not just one sin, but more sins. It's amazing how sin breeds sin, doesn't it? And we're... We're so apt and prone to think because of the deceitfulness of sin and the pride of our own heart. If I just do this one sin, it won't make another sin. But oh, how false of you that is. We see it here in David. God's people do fall into sin. The Bible everywhere is very plain on this point. It's a sad point, but it's nonetheless a very plain point from Scripture. David sinned. Peter grievously sinned before the Lord by cursing him, denying him. These things show the reality that Christians can sin and do sin. It shows us the reality that there is remaining sin in us. That if it's not guarded, if it's not watched against, that it will break out into a plague. Secondly, this shows us that none of us are exempt to sin, its temptations and snares. Not only the sin itself, but the temptations and the snares of sin. And brethren, it doesn't matter what our position is in life. It doesn't matter what our callings are. It doesn't matter whether we're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. As Christians, we can fall into sin. And we need to remember that. Young people, you remember that. And you guard your hearts. You older folks, we need to remember this as well. None of us are beyond, as we mentioned this morning, to be re- have our remembrance stirred up. But let me cause you to remember this. You can fall into sin and mar your testimony and face some of the most grievous chastisements for it. Third thing this teaches us is that if a Christian does fall into sin, and he will, God will recover him. God will not allow him to continue in a life of disobedience. The road to repentance may be difficult, it may be hard, and it may look as if it's impossible. But thank God it will happen. David and others again are shining examples of God rescuing his children when they have fallen into temptation 
and snares and into sin. And while they sinned hard, such as David and Peter, yet they were brought to themselves. God will not leave them in it. Those are some valuable lessons to remember. Now, what we have recorded for us in this psalm is David voicing here his desire for forgiveness and restoration unto God. You can get the feeling of it just reading this text. Whether we knew something of the background or not, you can see a man here who is set, who is made ready, who is seeking, who is desiring, who is knocking to have forgiveness and reconciliation in that sense back unto God. Now, I'm not, it's my plan this morning to dwell upon the many things that we find in David's cry here for forgiveness. What I want to do is for us to note what is found actually in verse 12. And in particular, the first part of that sentence. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. David's sin, David's sins in the plural actually, took his joy of that salvation from him. David lost his joy. When he sinned, when he went into Bathsheba, and when he had her husband murdered, and he covered it, and at least at this point, whatever he may have thought and whatever he may have done within that year, we know now he lost the joy of his salvation. He didn't lose his salvation as the Arminian teaches, but rather... He lost the joy of it. Now, there can be several things that can interrupt or can take away the joy of our salvation. Certainly, as we know, the history of this psalm, it was some very gross sins that David committed. Very gross sins. But other things can remove it as well. Let me give you an example of some things that can remove and have removed the joy of God's people in regards to the salvation that God has so freely blessed us with. One of them, of course, is trials and adversities. They can cause us to lose the joy of our salvation. Trials and adversities. And I'm not going to expound on these, so let's just list them. Secondly, a lack of understanding of God's salvation. Folks can either not have it or not retain it. Because of a lack of understanding of it. Thirdly, leaving off Bible reading, private prayer, Sabbath breaking, leaving off heart religion can bring a departure of the joy of God's salvation. Fourthly, Satan. Remember, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He knows he can't take your salvation away. But he's sure going to try to rob you of it. The joy of it. Fifthly, growing close to the world. 
more delight in the things of the world, what it can give, rather than dividing, uh, delighting in the things of God. And then lastly, theological errors. Theological errors can rob us of our biblical, scriptural joy that God has imparted in our salvation. But nothing, though, so easily as great sins, as we see from our text here. Whether you agree with those other things or not, matters little. This one we know for a fact. Great sins can remove the joy of our salvation. Notice verse 12 again. Here David is pleading with God, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. So the first thing I'd like us to see this morning is that our text suggests that at one time or previously, he had the joy of God's salvation. That's an inference I realize from the text, but I think it's a safe inference. Because not only do I see it as an inference here, but the Scripture itself certainly lets us know this. That David had a joy in God's salvation. Before he went astray, before he fell into these great sins, there was a time in which David had in his Christian experience the joy in the forgiveness of sins and in the imputed righteousness of Christ. He rejoiced that his sins were forgiven. He had a conscience which had knowledge of peace with God. It was a delight to him. It was a joy to him. He rejoiced in salvation. God's salvation. I've always quoted that verse wrongly here. I've always quoted it, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That's not what it says. It says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. This puts it in the right perspective, doesn't it? It's thy salvation I joy in. Yeah, it's mine. I've come to enjoy it. It's mine. But now, David says, I've lost it. It's gone. But he had it. Psalm 32. This is how I know he had it. He sings here of this very fact. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Paul says that's David in Romans 4. That's David. He had the joy of his salvation. Now, I can see some objection. I hope not in your face. But I can see the world's objection or Christian's objection. There are those who, I have to admit, sadly are not so joyous over the good news of salvation. There are folks who in all other signs and all other graces that we can see dwelling in them and manifesting themselves in them who think it is somehow more spiritual if they do not enjoy their salvation. They think they've reached some kind of a, a special plane of Christianhood by being miserable about their salvation. They see a mark of grace in that. 
And some will blame that they got it from the Puritans. What they've done is misread the Puritans. You read 18th and 19th, or excuse me, 19th and 20th and 21st century summaries of Puritans by the world of scholarship today. They don't have a clue what those great men believed. The Millers and the Morgans and those fellows who have written upon Christian Puritanism of the 16th and 17th century didn't understand them. They didn't have the Spirit of God to understand them. But sadly, there are Christians who have misunderstood them as well. Or they just plain misunderstand worse what the Scripture says. They think that salvation is to be lifeless, is to be joyless. You must wear a frown, or worse, they think it's all should be they should be stoic. And we mentioned this morning, again, they weren't the good guys. Not to have affections and feelings is what these fellows think their motto is. Don't have any joy. Don't have any emotions. Don't have any feelings in regards to such serious matters as salvation and forgiveness and justification and reconciliation. My friend, they've missed it. You've missed it if that's your, that's your carriage. You don't understand Christianity. And yes, I know there are hard trials. I know there are difficulties in the Christian life. We live through them. But I also know that, brethren, there is joy in our salvation. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is good news. The Bible calls it glad tidings. Glad tidings make you happy. Glad tidings make you joyful. It's not a message. It is a message that will bring sorrow and tears. It's true. There's no doubt about it. But there is a facet about the gospel. If we're going to preach the fullness of it, in which there is joy, it is glad tidings. And with this glad tidings are related then very closely joy and happiness. Listen to the following passage in this relationship to the gospel and salvation and happiness and joy. And then you put your life and your affections alongside of it and see who it matches. David says to the chief musician, a psalm of David, The king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation, How greatly shall he rejoice. Not just joy, but rejoice. Greatly. There's an adverb in there. The king shall joy in strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. Isaiah says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying 
That's New Covenant Christianity. Now, don't misread that. He's not saying there isn't that there. He's just talking about a facet here in regard to our salvation in which the sins are forgiven. The weeping stops. And there's joy. I remember that passage I preached on years ago. When I, and I still use it as far as when I want to stir folks up or I try to stir folks up into singing with joy and happiness. And to realize that, you know, God, when He thinks of us, when He thinks of His elect in Christ Jesus, joys over us. And are we not to be God-like? The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. When He thinks of us, he sings with joy. Remember the angels who came and revealed themselves unto the shepherds. What was it? Fear not. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. Again, Luke 24:52, And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. John 15:11 These things I have spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Romans 5:11 And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Joy, he says. When we think about the atonement that's been made for us, God being reconciled into, are we being reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, His death, the atonement, putting us back together to God because of the great sins of our of our lives and the sin of Adam. Paul says, we also joy. In God. Romans fourteen seventeen, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. In fact, Paul has to tell us in Galatians 5, 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And the second one is joy. It's hard to mesh some folks' understanding of this with the Bible, isn't it? When they think that it is more spiritual to be not as joyous as we ought to be in the things of God. It's hard to think how that these folks can take their Bibles and read it like we do. And come away with the idea you're to be a sourpuss, children, in your salvation. Who's right? Again, I'm not talking about your whole Christian walk. I'm not talking about every facet of, a, of the redeemed man. I'm talking about there is a facet 
There is a reality. There is a truth about when we think about our salvation that we can have the experience of rejoicing. I think Paul realized something of the difficulty of it because he tells us in, as an imperative, as a command in the book of Philippians to rejoice. And again, I say unto you, rejoice. Maybe Paul already knew some of those fellows who misread the Puritans and thought it was holy to be sour. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? The last we see of that man, he's in his chariot. He's heading towards Egypt. And the Scripture says, he went away rejoicing. That's how we see the backside of that Ethiopian eunuch. He went back. He went away rejoicing. So, the point here is, there was a time in David's life when he could experience, and he did experience that. And then secondly, though, this joy may be lost. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Now that we don't that's not an inference. Maybe small it's an inference, but it's it's true. He lost the joy of his salvation. Sin, brethren, had taken it from him. God, because of David's sin, had taken it from him. While Davis was joyous in the past, He is most certainly very unhappy at the present in Psalm 51. Notice verse 8. He's even getting chastisement from this. And so he has to cry out, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. You see, David at this point couldn't for lack of better words, he couldn't feel that joy anymore. It had been removed from him. He could not feel it. He could not experience it. He could not sense it. The joy was gone. That joy that had brightened his heart, that made him feel he was forgiven before the Lord and had pleasure and delight and understanding of it, is now gone. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He has to cry. We see something of this in another psalm which he is confessing his sins. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? He goes on to say, I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. My water, I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. 
grief came in where there was once joy for David. How sad it is, isn't it, brethren, for one who has been walking with the Lord, walking in the countenance and in the light of the Lord, and then depart, and then find the joy of fellowship with God is lost. Remember the disciples' heart there on the road to Emmaus when Jesus had been amongst them and He didn't reveal Himself to them. But He told them about these things. And then He disappeared. Remember what they said? Did our hearts not burn within us? Don't tell me man doesn't have some kind of affections. Just this idea of talking about that makes some people uncomfortable, doesn't it? Makes them very uncomfortable. Remember Peter, when he had denied the Lord three times, as he was told he would, but confidently he wouldn't. But when before men he curses and denies the Lord, and then there's a passage in one of the Gospels that says that Christ turned and looked at Peter. That's what happened to David, in a sense. God had looked upon David. David saw the one whom he saw down through the ages who was going to bear his sin, whose David's sins were going to be imputed to, and he would suffer, bleed, and die for. In a sense, in a figure, David saw him look at him and said, Thou art the man. And if he had joy before that, because of deceit, he may have, I don't know. Again, we don't know that. He doesn't have it now. He lost it. And what happened to Peter, you remember? We were discussing that just a moment. What happened to Peter? The Scripture says he went out and he wept bitterly. He had lost the joy of his salvation. The pleasure of the Lord was hid behind the cloud of sin and transgressions. Well, a moment ago we said the text suggested he had once, at one time, had the joy of his salvation. The text now suggests he is a one miserable man. Why is David miserable? The answer is simple. Sin. Sin. Why is David miserable? Sin. If you don't get anything outside of this sermon today, get this. He became miserable in the salvation that was freely provided and given to him by the grace of God. He was miserable because of sin. James tells us, remember as we were preaching through that here recently, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. It's a chain reaction that will take place. Hebrews tells us about chastisement. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be 
joyous, but grievous. It's not supposed to feel good when we sin. It's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to grieve us. And when God lays His chastening hand upon us, we are to feel it. We're to experience it. We're to sense it. We're to know it. Again, please remember, I'm not saying this is the only reason you can lose the joy of your salvation. Please don't think that. Don't go from here and saying, well, I'm not joyous right now. I must have some deep, dark, secret sin that just hasn't been revealed to me. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying this was David's predicament. If it's yours, you better line up with it. And then thirdly, notice here, David desires it again. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. David wants it back. He recognizes, we said a while ago, he's lost it. He sees now what sin has cost him. His joy of the Lord. He understands now what is the reward of sin. What was the reward of David's sin? Well, one of them was chastisement. One was even the loss of a baby. But the one that gripped him here was the joy of his salvation. And now we see he wants it restored. He wants it back. And so in the midst of his crying out for forgiveness, in the midst of his repentance, in the midst of all of this we see here in this psalm, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. At one time, he sought pleasure in sin and he lost his joy. Now he seeks God to restore the joy he once knew. And I think David here would gladly exchange all the dangers and the terrors and the pleasures and the chastisement that sin brings for the joy that he once knew. Don't you think? I think we will want it when God takes it away from us. If David is an example to us, it is an example of this too. That when we get it taken away by sin, because of sin, through God dealing with us, we will want it back. Just as surely as He took it away. And so David here appeals to the One who could only give it. Remember we said earlier... We read from Galatians 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is, one of them is joy. It's a spiritual grace. It isn't something we can pump up in us. Now, I realize people can do that. But it's not the joy that we're talking about from Scripture. And it's true, there are... No, we won't get into that. But there are ways in which we are to seek joy and to stir ourselves unto it. But I'm not talking... I'm talking about the false joy that can be given... Because of false principles, false theologies, false states of mind. Those are realities. But that's not what we want. We don't want a counterfeit, do we? When it comes to such an important matter that it finds itself right smack almost in the middle of this psalm, we want the real thing, don't we? We want the joy returned to us that we once knew with the Lord. I want it back. And then lastly, 
And I'll use this as application and I'll call it that so you won't think that I left out the application. But the last point is simply this. Some means of attaining and sustaining the joy of God's salvation that has been stolen away. I'm not done yet. So we got a minute. Some means of attaining and sustaining the joy of God's salvation that's been stolen away because of sin. The first one is this. Repent. If sin has been the culprit, my friend, repent. Look in verse 16 and 17. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. That's repentance. Turning us from sin. A full repentance. Not partial. Not getting rid of some sin or some of the effects of sin. Not an incomplete repentance, but a full turning from sin with broken hearts. And there's no meter here, so don't put one there. But it's a sin. It's a repentance that turns you. I'll tell you that. However deep it may get into our souls, the effect will be a turning. Secondly, confession. Confession. That's never far from repentance. Notice David in verse 2. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He says. Look at verse 4. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mayest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. It's not, oh, wait a minute, God. Who are you to treat me this way? That's not repentance and confession. Well, God, look what you're doing. You're going to end up killing my son because of my sin. What kind of God are you? Look at the fun you're taking away from my life. Look what I'm having to uh, deny because of sin. That's not godly repentance and confession. You don't blame God and you don't blame others. You justify God. When I did evil, you did right. That's the testimony of a man who wants his joy back. And he won't have it back any other way. He will not play with sin. And he will not play with God. Behold, he goes on to say in verse 5, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He not only confesses his sin, he confesses what we call original sin that was his by imputation and also through uh, coming through his parents. The third thing I would encourage you to do is to look for it from God. David didn't turn in himself to find this, did he? He turned to God. Restore unto me 
the joy of thy salvation. And then notice the second phrase, which we didn't deal with today, but he says, and uphold me with thy free spirit. He knew that God's spirit was sovereign and he works as he pleases. And so he goes to the one who could and would work on the behalf of sinners. Grieving sinners, such as David. Look for it, my friend, from God. Fourthly, look for it in the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6 and 7, or at least verse 7, excuse me. This is Old Testament language pointing towards New Testament realities. This is the figure that David was so very aware of in the Old Covenant. That in the cleansing and purging of sin, that they would do it this way. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, David is not looking in reality to those Old Testament ways of forgiveness. He knew that there was coming a one a, a sacrifice that truly would bring forgiveness. And that was the blood of the Son of Jesus Christ. The one David said he took pleasure in. The one that was always by God's right hand. He's not saying, oh, I'm finding forgiveness, <coughs> excuse me, and true forgiveness in these, these ceremonial actings of the priests. No. David is looking forward to the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. He's looking to his advocate who will take mercy upon him and cleanse him with his own blood. So look for it, my brethren, from the blood of Christ. uh, Fifthly, verse 8 teaches us we have to bear up under chastisement. Sin brings consequences. Just, fair, right consequences from God. And we have to bear up under it. And it's not pleasurable getting whipped. How many children ran to your daddies and begged them to whip you? In all seriousness. Not many. Not many, is it? You don't look forward to chastisement. In fact, David or uh, Paul says that. Remember we read that. No chastisement is joyous, but it's grievous. But, he goes on to say, it does yield peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. We have to bear up under chastisement. Verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Yeah, I want to sin. Or I, I want to. Yeah, I want to sin. And then I want forgiveness. And then I want everything just to be turned back to normal. That's how we think. It doesn't work that way. Sin costs things. Sorrows. Changes of pattern in lives. Changes of other people's lives. And while we're forgiven, and while God remembers our sins no more, And we think of David in this. David's baby died. 
And David bore up under that chastisement. Read the account of what he did. He fasted and prayed before that baby died, hoping that God would have mercy. They, are, they couldn't get him to eat. They couldn't even get him to rise off of the floor. He was showing his, his hurt, his, his repentance in the Old Testament way. And then the baby died. And then they were fearful to come tell David about it because they thought, well, look what has happened to him while the baby was alive. What will he do if he hears the news that he's dead? And David looks over and he sees, oh, they're talking about me and they're hush, hush, hush about it. The child must have died. David gets up, washes his face, he clothes himself, and he goes in and he sits down to eat. Does this mean he wasn't sad about his baby? Oh, look, he's been grieving for days. But what does he say? You know, I had no idea whether God was going to hear me or not. I had no idea whether God was going to look at my my chastenings of my soul through fasting and my prayers, whether He would be merciful to me or not. So that's why I did it. But now that it's done, I get up. I wash my face. And I also take the comfort to know that I'll see him again. You see, David bore up under it. So there's a lesson there, isn't it? If you want the joy restored unto you, bear up under your chastisement. Sixthly, jealously guard it, my friend. Jealously. Make it more precious than anything that you know of. Learn the lesson this morning of David. Learn our lessons in our own chastisement and our own sins and how easily the joy of of that salvation can be taken from us. So then keep our hearts. I don't have time. I was going to read you something. From a a fellow named James Morgan who preached upon this text. But I'll forbid that because of the time's sake this morning. But let me encourage you this morning, Christian, to search your heart. Is there now joy in God's salvation? Think about it. Examine yourself about it. I'm not speaking about joys in your circumstances, the trials and the adversities. Because those can rob it. There's no doubt about that. But is there joy and peace in our conscience that salvation is something our soul possesses? Or as you're looking through this and you're doing diligent searching, let me ask you, is there a sin, oh, a secret sin perhaps, that has removed that joy? Some continual disobedience that you're doing that has just taken the edge off your happiness in Christ. Is it? It's supposed to. Has your joy in the things of the world robbed you of this joy? The worldly desires, the worldly success, the world's security as we are silly thinking... Worldly motives, worldly friends, worldly pleasures. 
Has it robbed you of the joy of God's salvation? Are those things, brethren, those worldly, more valuable to you than the joy of your salvation? Do you prize more highly the world and what it can offer you in falseness? Has it, is it more prized in your deluded mind that you would have such a trade-off for the joy and peace of conscience and of salvation that you would lay it aside for these things of the world? What a sorry trade-off. And as you pillow your head at night, you have to agree with that. Whether you do anything about it or not. I hope there's enough grace in your conscience to say, I don't like it. But he's right. That pastor today hit it on the head in regards to me and my sin. I wasn't comfortable through it. It made me squirm. I wanted it to be over. But I tell you what, conscience, he was right, wasn't he? You know, and I'm not too crazy about getting out of my sin. I am enjoying it. But I've got to admit, what he said was right. God help you. God help you this morning. God help all of us. And if it is gone, then seek it like David. You honestly this morning can't be a happy Christian. you don't have this joy. Don't delude yourself. Begin with what we said. Repent. Look for it from God. Look for it in the blood of Christ. Confess it. Bear up under chastisement. And then guard it like you would the king's treasures. Because that's what it is to our souls.